Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Friday, the 9th of October. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Professor Raina McIntyre. She will be commenting on the Great Barrington Declaration, which, if you had not heard of, may well do so. As health professionals, we need to be well informed in how we respond to those espousing these views, and you will benefit from Professor McIntyre's insightful comments. The latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Professor Raina McIntyre. Raina, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Raina McIntyre. I'm Professor of Global Biosecurity at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. Raina, today I'm going to ask you questions about the Great Barrington Declaration. Now, most of the GPs may not have heard of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a minute or two to read out two paragraphs of that. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Coming from both the left and right and around the world, we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, to name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come, with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We know that all populations will eventually reach herd immunity. That is the point at which the rate of new infections is stable. And that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent upon, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimise mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. The most compassionate approach that balances the risk and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection whilst better protecting those who are at highest risk. We call this focused protection. Professor McIntyre, 
what are your responses and opinions regarding focused protection? Well, it's something that Sweden tried to do. That was exactly what they tried to do, in fact, um, you know, which is to allow young, healthy people to get about their lives and um, protect the elderly. That was their intention. But of course, you know, that's not how epidemic diseases behave. Epidemic behave diseases don't neatly sit in the compartments we want them to sit. Um, you know, what happened in Sweden was there were huge outbreaks in aged care facilities. Um, it, the, the aged care facilities were very badly affected and so were the elderly outside of aged care facilities. And um, in the end, you know, uh, there were report, families were complaining that their loved ones were being euthanized in, in aged care facilities as soon as they got infected. So that's how they were dealing with this um, massive epidemic in aged care. So, you know, given that there's already been an exper natural experiment in Sweden, I don't know what they think they can do differently. Mm. I also kind of wonder about people who use the term epidemiologist, you know, the, for, to the lay public, uh, when you say epidemiologist, people think, you know, everything about pandemics, but that's not the case. You know, there are people who are epidemiologists who work on cancer or, you know, um, environmental health or other things. And, you know, that the knowledge and um, expertise of pandemics is, is not something that, you know, uh, someone who works in some other field of epidemiology can just pick up in a couple of months. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of things that I think this group of pe people don't understand about the nature of epidemic diseases. Firstly, they're, they're talking about herd immunity as if it's achievable through a natural infection, which it isn't. Um, if that, you know, and anyone who knows anything about the history of vaccine preventable diseases in the era before we had vaccines knows that none of these infections went away um, through herd immunity. It doesn't happen. The concept of herd immunity is, has arisen out of vaccines, not out of natural infection. When you don't have a vaccine, you just keep getting recurrent epidemics. And, you know, there's heaps of graphs of measles, rubella, smallpox, um, all the infections that we knew previously. Um, and that's exactly what happens until you vaccinate people. So it's not going to be any different for COVID-19. Mm. So A, there's a massive um, failure to understand what herd immunity is and that it can't be achieved through natural infection. And I think you have to ask, what other vested interests does this group have? It does ask that question, doesn't it? Because it does ask for... Uh, if you like, a normalising of lifestyles, i.e. the opening up of the economy. In which case, I need to ask you, Professor McIntyre, seeing that Sweden did not really close its economy much, how well did Sweden fare again with their economic outcomes? No better than anyone else in Europe. So that's the ultimate test of it. That It's again this false dichotomy, that view that you know, it's a choice between the economy or disease control. It's not a choice. If you don't control the disease, the economy is going to tank anyway because, you know, you've, you're going to have so many people off sick uh, because they're infected that your whole workforce is going to be impacted. Supply chains are going to be impacted. You know, it's, it's just, you know, a very um, misinformed view to think that they are mutually exclusive propositions, disease control and the economy. And they mentioned that those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally, meaning school children and the young 
healthy people going about. Is it true that at the moment, COVID-19 spares the young and children? Relatively. In countries where, um, you know, definitely the, inc inc the morbidity and mortality increases exponentially after the age of 50, actually, which is a lot of working people up above 50, but in, dis in countries where there is a rip-roaring epidemic, you do see a lot of morbidity and mortality in children. You see infants under the age of 12 months dying. You see children getting the um, Kawasaki syndrome, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, and all kinds of serious complications. So, you know, and the other point is that the way we live in society um, is that we do live within intergenerational households. Parents have children, you know, high school kids, their parents might be in their 50s. So it's not, you know, unless you're proposing restructuring society and setting up kibbutzes where children live on their own without adults, it's not possible, you know, to separate people out. And I think there's just a complete lack of knowledge in this group of um, how infections spread. That is such a clear thing, isn't it, Rana? Take the children and the youth away from the parents and, and, and split society up that way, even if it was true or possible. It's a horrible way to live life. But in a way, I'm really looking at this declaration and saying to myself, it is really in the end about money and lives, isn't it? It's about money and lives, whatever you do, you know? this is the worst you know there's some estimates that this is the worst impact on society since world war ii i think people just need to wake up and smell the roses you know this is actually happening we can't go into denial and think that things will be fine if we pretend it's not happening it is happening we need to actually use tried and tested disease control measures and that's the best way to um, lead to economic recovery. Countries like New Zealand and Australia are in a good position because we've had such effective disease control that we can afford to, you know, in cities like Sydney, people are leaving, leading a pretty normal life, but we've used all the disease control measures. I think in, the, in countries like the US and the UK where this proposal has, this declaration has arisen, they've kind of had a massive failure of public health. In a way, they actually are just living with it. You know, it's like, it's inconceivable how terrible their, their disease control is in those countries. So they are living with it. You know, this is what this, what they seek is what they've got, you know, <laughs> heaps of disease and um, are just chaos. Yes. I, I just find it interesting, as you mentioned, Professor McIntyre, that the declaration is actually coming out of countries that are doing badly rather than from countries that are coming and doing well. Uh, you know, it's like follow our bad example. I think, I think we need some declarations of conflict of interest from these people, you know, who is backing them, who's funding them, who have they been talking to, uh, you know, that's what we need to know. It, the whole thing smacks of some vested interest. Mm -hmm. I think you did mention UK. Didn't Boris Johnson try in the early days to actually do something like this before he realised, whoops, maybe not, and change direction? Yes, he said the SAGE committee in the UK was actually advocating herd immunity. They were the ones who started all this talk about herd immunity. You know, same, the UK was the origin of the measles vaccine causing autism theory, which kind of derailed vaccination for no reason for 20 years. And the UK was also the origin of this herd immunity theory, which is just a false theory propagated by people who don't know enough about what they're talking about. It's, it's a sad indictment.
Professor McIntyre, I'm going to change topic a little bit. President Trump has survived, survived COVID-19. He seems louder than ever and calling people not to be afraid of the virus. Um, what do you see maybe some of the consequences of his emboldened approach? Well, it's twofold. I think um, for the people who are his ardent supporters, who um, they will, you know, the, the whole COVID denial, the hoax stuff, it'll just get magnified and that'll make disease control harder. However, for the 200,000 or so people who've died and the millions who've been infected in the US and suffered enormously as a result, for them, for each one of those people, there'll be friends and family who know the real consequences of people who can't afford, you know, VIP treatment at the Walter Reed Hospital. There, there, there's going to be a lot of people out there for whom it will be highly offensive to hear that kind of dismissive comment. Are there any concerns that the, if you like, the emboldened approach that he has advocated may permeate Australian community? Look, there is a small fringe group in Australia that is following those kind of sovereign citizen movements and those things that have arisen in the US. But on the whole, Australian culture is quite different. We are much more civic minded and, you know, uh, we the way we operate is much more aligned with, you know, the public good. We tend to be more respectful of government and government authority, uh, government mandates, etc. So I don't think it's going to have the kind of impact it, it will have in the US. The US is, you know, it's, it's things are really chaotic there. And there's also, a, yeah, I, I don't see that happening in Australia in the immediate near future. Moving on to a third topic very quickly. Are you happy where Victoria is sitting? And where do you think we're headed in New South Wales? Yeah, I think Victoria's done very well. The numbers have come right down. We want to see that trend continue. We want to see zero community transmissions by November, you know, and I think that's achievable. Um, that will then enable us to go into that Christmas New Year period safely, more safely. Um, of course, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. So the risk of importation of infection without, without anyone being aware of it and um, setting off community epidemic is ever present. You know, it's not going to go away. And the biggest risk is in Sydney and Melbourne because those two cities have the greatest number of international um, arrivals. Um, and as we've seen in Sydney, you know, we've got a cluster now of unknown origin in southwestern Sydney. We've got restaurants not complying with the guidance to um, document people's names and addresses, phone numbers when they come in which then makes contact tracing impossible, you know, if everyone's not doing the right thing and, um, you know, playing their part in ensuring we have a safe society. Um, so I think that is a concern. And notably, the Sydney outbreak, the current one, um, was there was a sewage sample that tested positive in the Camden area before the outbreak was detected. So that tells you that monitoring sewage is actually a really good early warning system because infected people excrete the virus in the feces. So if you pick it up in a geographic location, you know, that's a good early indicator that there is COVID in that community. Our testing rates have fallen markedly. What can we do about that? Well, I'm not that concerned about it. I mean, the testing rates really should reflect the rate of disease, mm -hmm. you know, 
while we had, you know, 700 cases a day in Melbourne, you would expect there to be a high testing rate. But when there's 10 cases a day, the need for testing is proportionate to the amount of disease because more cases have their contacts, the contacts need to be tested. So I think what we should be looking at is the ratio of cases to testing rather than the number of tests as a raw number. That's a good point. Uh, is there a ratio to work with or and are you happy with the covering ratio? Well, we just want to see the ratio stay constant. We don't want to see it declining. Raina, I really appreciate your response to just these couple of pressing issues. Uh, do you have any final messages for our uh, listeners, especially if we hear this Barrington Declaration being discussed socially or by our patients with their GPs? You know, you can just reiterate the points that I've made that, you know, herd immunity cannot be achieved by natural infection. It's a concept that arose from vaccination. And, uh, you know, you can't neatly separate out the population without physically separating the population, you know. Uh, the virus spreads the way the virus spreads. And it's not going to care about where you want it to spread, you know. Mm. Um, the herd immunity is a mathematical, you can calculate mathematically the required herd immunity for a particular infection based on the reproductive number, which is the number of secondary cases caused by a primary infection. Uh, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, it's between two and three, let's say 2.5, in which case, based on the formula for calculating herd immunity, you need about 60 to 70% of your population immune to be able to... Um, local transmission. And in New York City, let's just look at the epidemic in New York, which we were all watching with horror in April, March and April. Um, they got to about maybe just under 20% of the population infected, right? Mm. And everything kind of fell apart. The health system fell apart. It's, it's not possible, you know, unless you want to live like that with your hospitals falling over and, you know, people hiding in their homes out of terror for years and years, it's not possible. Um, you know, the majority of the population, even in a country like the US, is still susceptible to COVID-19. Um, so I think, and the other thing is, is people who have signed the Barrington Declaration, you know, we need to know what their vested interests are. Uh, we need some kind of declaration of conflicts of interest from them, which isn't there. Raina, I thank you for this comments. They are actually very important to us. And I once again thank you for your precious time. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases is nearing 36.4 million. The USA leads the list with nearly 7.6 million cases. India, more than 6.8 million. Brazil has exceeded 5 million cases. Russia, more than 1.2 million. Colombia, more than 886,000 cases. We now find that Argentina has shot up the list with nearly 860,000 and Spain with nearly 849,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths is recorded at 1,059,616. The USA recorded more than 212,000 deaths. Brazil, more than 148,000. India, more than 105,000, Mexico, nearly 83,000 deaths, and the UK with more than 42,600 deaths. Australia has recorded 
36 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Of these, 24,807 have recovered and there are 248 active cases in Australia. There have been 897 deaths recorded in Australia from COVID-19. 809 people have died in Victoria, 55 in New South Wales, 13 in Tasmania, 9 in Western Australia, 4 in Queensland and South Australia, and 3 in the ACT. Victoria has reported 11 new cases of COVID-19 in the past 24 hours and no deaths in the past two days. These figures are just fabulous. There are only 16 cases in Victorian hospitals, only one being ventilated. This compares well with New South Wales, recording nine in hospitals and one in ICU yesterday. New South Wales has reported five new cases of community transmission, all linked to known sources, and a further five cases in returned travellers in hotel quarantine. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.